it's great to, great to have you all here. Um, yeah, we want to look at a, a topic that I think is is essential, and uh, and as you'll you see, it's going to be from James chapter two, and uh, this is something that started from the very beginning of the the early church, something that uh, was taking place and has continued down through history and and affects us even today when we talk about partiality. And when we come to uh, this this topic today, just think about the author of the book, uh, James, the brother of Jesus, and who he was. Uh, Being the brother of, of Jesus... Can you imagine, do you think partiality was shown to him? Uh, He shows up at different places. Oh, this is the brother of Jesus. And obviously, honor, you know, just honoring him. But I'm sure he experienced it. Um, But before we uh, just jump into the message, let's pray. Lord, we are uh, grateful for the the time that uh, we have today to look at your word, to look at partiality and when this takes place in, in the church, what happens and the damage that can be done? And how do we go about uh, resisting partiality? Lord, we're grateful that, uh, that you're not partial, but you are an impartial God who rules sovereignly over all of your creation, over our lives. And uh, we are thankful for you, that you are the God that does not change And you do not judge us because you have forgiven us because of the sacrifice of your son. And Lord, we love you for that, and we give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen. When we think about partiality, uh, what we want to look at is just think about the partiality or the favoritism of man, just in general. And we can think about even just modern day uh, situations. I, I heard recently where a lady was traveling from Guatemala and going to Washington, D.C. with a connecting flight through Houston, and she had a first-class seat, you know, and obviously when you have a first-class seat, you're like, this is going to be good, I have space, and uh, I can talk and move, and so she was enjoying her flight on the way to uh, Houston. Once she got to Houston and was waiting to get on the next flight, the connecting flight, she went to check in, and they said, there's no record of you to, to be on this flight. And she's like, what? You know, what, what's going on here? And so after working through the situation, she was able to get a seat towards the back of the plane and a $500 voucher, of course. You've got to have that. <laughs> and, but she noticed that once she got on the plane, she saw that a well-known politician was sitting in her first-class seat. And she knew, you know, okay, they were deferring to this this person, more than likely, uh, to give them that that front-row seat. And needless needless to say, there's some uh, legal issues going on there. But that's just an example of sometimes preferential treatment can take place for different reasons, whether you're a politician or if you're well-known, um, and in this class, and in, in this case, this was someone that was well-known. And we know that when it comes to politics, even, uh, partiality and favoritism, that, that's what it's all about. Are you of this particular party? You know, and, then, and if you are, then I'm going to be with you. And so that's something that is persistent in, in our culture. Um, even when we look in the Bible, we see examples of partiality uh, from Old Testament times. Jacob loved jo- Joseph more, and Joseph learned that partiality from his father and favored his younger brother. And so as we look at partiality and favoritism, we want to say, you know, what's the danger of partiality uh, in the church? And that's because it's going to affect the unity in the church. I mean, if there is one thing that's important as a body of believers, it's that we are united together, right? Uh, We have a a common goal, and that is to to worship our Lord and Savior and to reach the lost and and to glorify the Lord through our lives and to take the gospel to the world through our missionaries and through our evangelism that takes place here in our, our local cities. 
And the only way we can do that is if we are unified. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul tells the church to seek to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, they were not to create uh, peace and unity. They already had it. They needed to, to keep it. And he, al- he also goes on in Philippians 1.27, and he told the Philippians that they should be striving together for the faith of the gospel. They had to strive together, work at it uh, for the, the cause of, of the gospel. And so we have to ask ourselves as believers uh, in the church, and when we're looking at James, we realize this is the early church, and more than likely it's the first uh, book of the New Testament that was written. And it wasn't necessarily the, uh, the church, the word that's used is a synagogue. And so it was the assembly where they came together to hear the gospel. And so there were those that were coming in, and they needed to encourage one another. And, and James is highlighting something that was a danger that he saw that was taking place. Well, in our human sinful nature, I mean, we have certain tendencies, Right? And that is, uh, we tend to be partial towards others. We can be partial to different people for different reasons. And sometimes we can put people in categories uh, before we even get to know them. Uh, We just assume certain things. We don't take the time to to get to know people. I can remember uh, something like that happening when my family, we moved into uh, a different neighborhood one time many years ago. And one of our neighbors was walking around. And he, uh, his appearance looked really rough. And just the way uh, he groomed himself. Uh, and so I was like, wow, I'm going to be careful of this guy. But after I got to know him and our family got to know him, he's like the biggest teddy bear that uh, you know, you'd ever get to know. But you can just make snap uh, assumptions about, about people. And so that's something that we have to think about when we come to talking about partiality is we can put people in categories. And sometimes we we do that based upon their looks, clothes, status, where they're from. Um, And so we want to look today at what our attitude should be. So talking about unity in the church, that's what we have to protect, unity in the church. What is it that causes unity in the church? What are the elements that have to take place? Well, obviously, love. Love has to be their love for one another. Um, And the reason is because God first loved us through Christ. Uh, Humility has to be there. Uh, A diversity of giftedness, uh, a body of believers that have different gifts, and then harmony. And so when it comes to all of those, partiality or favoritism can threaten them all. It can destroy them. And so to continue to look at what the example should be, we want to look at what, what God does. How does God operate? What a part of his attributes? And God is impartial. And we want to look at just a few references quickly from the Old Testament. What about the impartiality of God? In Deuteronomy 10.17, it says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. The great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. Obviously, uh, there were those um, that would take a bribe. And when they take a bribe, that changes their opinion of, and the outcome of what was going to happen based upon what I can get out of it. And so God is not like that. He's not like us. He's impartial. And... Second Chronicles 19.7, Now then, let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very careful what you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness or partiality or the taking of a bribe. In Job 34.19, Who shows no partiality to princes, speaking of God, nor regards the rich above the poor, for they are all for they all are the work of his hands. Psalm 82.2, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Proverbs uh, 28.21, To show partiality is not good, because for a piece of bread a man will transgress. 
So you can kind of see the exchange that's going on here. Um, I'm going to I receive a bribe. I'm going to get something out of it. Then I'm going to show partiality. I'm going to have a different decision than maybe what should be made. Or uh, even for food, you know, I'm, I, I will do something for food. I'll make a different decision about a person based upon getting that food. And then in Malachi 2.9, So I also have made you despised and abased before all the people, just as you are not keeping my ways but are showing partiality in the instruction. And this, these were the priests who were responsible to be teaching. And even they were showing partiality in how they uh, treated people. And they were the ones that were supposed to stand up and give the example to, to, to others. And even when, uh, just think about the, in the Old Testament, when the prophet Samuel showed up in uh, Bethlehem, he went to Bethlehem, and he's looking for the next king of Israel. And he's looking at all the sons that Jesse had, a lot of them, you know, strapping uh, sons, bigger men, older. And yet the one that uh, got overlooked was the, 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 the way the Bible puts it in one version is ruddy. He was ruddy and, and probably shorter, younger. And he wasn't even considered uh, to be the, the king that could be picked. But it says that the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the poorest of the family was chosen, as David was the youngest. So that's how God sees. He's impartial. He doesn't look on the situation as we do. And there's many other examples. In Genesis, uh, the promise to Abraham stresses the broader promise concept of nations being blessed. All people of every ethnicity are made in the image of God. And salvation is provided to all through the ultimate Israelite, Jesus the Messiah, who will restore the nation of Israel and bring the blessings to the Gentiles as well. So that's the Old Testament. What about some examples from the New Testament? Um, in Acts 10.35, uh, Peter finally shed Jewish animosity towards Gentiles when he says in verse 35, But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Um, so even the Apostle Peter, you know, he had these uh, judgments about others and, and wanting to hold on to uh, the promise that was made to the Jews. But he realized, yeah, it's going to all of the nations. Everyone is welcome to come to know Christ when they repent. Romans 2, 9 to 11. Uh, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. So every person will be judged entirely based on the condition of his soul. And it's another way that we can demonstrate impartiality is by we, how we treat other believers. And then in 1 John 3, it talks about love there in three sixteen to 19. And talking about, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. And but whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. And we will know by this that we are of the truth and it will assure our own heart before him. So God loves us and we need to love one another. And one more from the New Testament in 1 Timothy 5.21 I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. So you're seeing this theme here of what God expects, that we're not to be partial. But because of our sinful human nature, that's our natural tendency. And it's something that we have to be on guard for. Well, when we're looking at uh, the book of James, um, it's a very practical book. It's been said that it's, it's like a Christian handbook because it deals with practical issues of trials in our lives and how do we respond to trials. Also, uh, getting a hold of uh, and control of our tongue, 
Um, and he even talks about the nature of sin and where sin comes from the inside. And that uh, once it's inside and we're thinking on it and we act on it and it gives birth uh, to, to sin. Um, so it's a very practical book. And so he's asking in James's in chapter 1, he gives us a test throughout James. He's saying, what does a true believer look like? And he's talking about the fact that how do we respond to temptation in chapter 1, verses 13 to to 18. Uh, The first test is how do we respond to trials. The second one is temptation. The third one is how do we react to the Word of God in chapter 1, verses 19 to 27. And the fourth test is what do we do with partiality and favoritism? And what James is dealing with here in chapter 2 is partiality when it comes to the social setting, the social status of people, and the economic status of people. And when you go back into the the Greek and Roman world at the time, uh, they had some very um, opinionated ideas about being, you know, who, who they would favor. And everything was about class. You're a certain class of people. And they exalted themselves in who they were and, and having money. Uh, and they would show off their clothes many times uh, in, in the Roman world to say, this is who I am and this is how much uh, money I have. And so it's in this type of world that the early church uh, began. And so there were different statuses of people and different classes of people. And they had the rich and they had the poor. And there was a great chasm in between. And so we want to ask ourselves, where do we find partiality or favoritism seated? You know, in James chapter 2, let's read uh, just these few verses here, 1 to 13. My brethren, and let, let me just start actually in verse twenty. Uh, 7 of the end of chapter 1. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, "Uh, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who loved him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty." For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So where is the uh, first seat that we find? Partiality, favoritism. It's in the seat of the heart. Uh, James starts off there and, you know, he has that endearing phrase that he always uses. My brethren. He talks about that because he cares for them. Um, And he loved them, uh, even though at times he he would condemn their practices. And he was respected and revered. Um, You know, James was, like we mentioned earlier, the brother of Jesus, the half-brother. But he was known as a man that, uh, for his holiness and for his prayer, and to the point that they said his his knees were like uh, camel skin, because he was on his knees so much. And 
They, they respected and revered him. So they know when he comes to them and challenges them uh, on this issue of partiality, they're, they're going to listen. And so this is something that was rearing its, its ugly head in, in the early church, and he's encouraging all of them uh, to be responsible for this sin. And he says, do not hold your faith uh, there. Do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And he's talking about, as a believer, if you believe in Christ, the gospel is about forgiveness. And the gospel is about uh, to all who will hear the message and to anyone that would come. And so he's saying, you, above all, as believers, you shouldn't be holding on to your faith in this way and treating uh, the poor in this manner. Um, and he said, when he says, do not, it's in the emphatic position in the original language. And it, it gives special force to the commands, command. And, and he's just saying, this is so uh, against what we are all about as believers. And if this is an unbroken, continual pattern in a person's life, um, it's, it's, you have to question whether someone is a believer if it's a continual pattern. And so he's calling them out for their favoritism. And he's making it clear that this, this is a sin. And we have to remember, like we were talking about in the, the Roman Greek world, this was a very ex- acceptable practice. And so to be confronted on something like this would stand out in their day and time uh, because, after all, yeah, there, there are people that they're at a higher class than us. And Christianity uh, cuts against the grain of, of this. And he's talking about our glorious uh, Lord Jesus Christ, literally, uh, Lord Jesus Christ of glory. Um, in other words, Jesus is the very presence of God. He's God himself. And you're claiming the name of Christ and yet acting this way, being partial. Uh, just interesting, when you look at a, a modern-day uh, definition of partiality, just in the Webster's Dictionary, it says, relating to the part rather than to the whole, inclined to favor one party more than the other, biased, markedly fond of someone or something. Uh, And in Greek, the word for partiality means an acceptor of the face or a respecter of persons. And in the Hebrew, it's an appeaser, an appeaser of the face. Obviously, you know, you're you're showing favor to someone, and that's the picture that is, is given. What about uh, Jesus? He was impartial. And in Matthew twenty two sixteen, it was so well known that when the, uh, the Herodians came to him, they, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. And the fact is, Jesus... He had authority. He didn't teach like their, their normal teachers who deferred to another rabbi, to this rabbi. No, he spoke with authority, but he spoke to everyone. His message was to everyone that would come and hear. Uh, he wasn't like the, the Sadducees and those who you know, held their nose up and said, hey, we're righteous. You're not like us, and they would put off the, the other people. Um, and so Jesus was impartial. He's God. Um, and so as he goes on there in verse 1 and says not to have this favoritism, um, the, the Greek word, if you look at it in the Vines Expository Dictionary, it expands this even more. Uh, the fault of one who, when responsible to give judgment, has respect to the position, rank, popularity, or circumstances of men instead of their intrinsic condition. So in other words, you come upon a situation, a case, you're not looking at the facts of the case. You see that, oh, wow, he's got this white robe on that's lined with silver, and he's wearing this special um, hat, whatever it is, and, oh, I'm going to give him extra respect because of what he looks like on the outside. Instead of, hey, what are the facts of this case? What is the right decision that has to be made? I'm going to instead show partiality. Um, in James 2.9, it clearly states that this is sin. This is sin. It's a serious issue. It's not something to be smoothed over. 
Um, and we're going to talk about, you know, what's the difference between partiality, showing favoritism, versus respect. I mean, there are times that we do show respect in different ways. Leviticus 19.15 says, You shall do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. Be fair uh, to all. And Paul says in Romans 2.11, For there is no partiality with God. Um, in Ephesians 6, 9, and masters do the same things to them and give up threatening. Uh, those that were slaves, you know, they would be threatening them, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Uh, just reminding those who, who own slaves in that day. Um, in Colossians 3.25, For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. So we are to hold on to our faith in a way that is not with favoritism. We're to be impartial. And this attitude of personal favoritism, uh, it's literally one long if you were to say it in, in Greek, it's a really long word. Um, and what it means is to lift one's face with the idea of giving someone special favor or, or respect and judging them on this superficial le- level. You could literally translate it this way in, in the order of the words. Do not with respect for persons be holding the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can just see the emphasis there. You know, you're holding on. Uh, to the favoritism, but at the same time trying to hold on, saying, hey, I'm a believer. It's contradictory. Um, And so this this noun that's used here is literally the receiving of a face. It's based on the Septuagint, which is a a Greek translation of the Old Testament, and uses a a Hebrew phrase meaning to lift up the face. So they associated this word with partiality. And it was based upon rank, wealth, race, a whole different host of reasons that they would have partiality. And James uses this word in the plural, and it was acts of partiality. It means there were all kinds of ways that people were showing partiality. And you can think of that even in your own life. If you or showing partiality to someone, or having favoritism. There's a whole host of ways that that can be done. And James is encouraging us and calling us not to do that. In Acts 10.34, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. We mentioned that earlier. And so we are not to show partiality. What about just some more examples of Christ's impartiality. Uh, Even in the genealogies of Jesus Christ, there were obscure people that were in our Lord's uh, genealogy. Jesus was not born in Jerusalem, but rather in Bethlehem, a a smaller little town. He grew up in uh, Nazareth, and it had a a poor reputation among most Jews. And you remember Nathaniel said that to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth in John 1.46? Uh, Pastor MacArthur talks about uh, partiality here, and he says, quote, The gospel is a great leveler, available with absolute equity to everyone who believes in the Savior. It proclaims Jesus' promise to all those who trust in him is, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So, The point is, this all starts in the heart. It's in our heart, the natural tendency to show impartiality. So it moves from the seat of the heart to the second seat, which is the seat of our actions. And James starts that off, and he says in verse 2, For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring, and then he goes on to talk about how he's treated. And they had wealthy members in the the early church, uh, obviously. And um, this was a situation that was obviously taking place. And, uh, 
you know, how you treat the man in your assembly is what he's talking about. The, the congre- congregation, uh, and we find this in uh, uh, Schur, he writes a history on the Jewish people in the time of Jesus, and he says this, quote, The congregation sat in an appointed order, the most distinguished members in the front seats, the younger behind, men and women probably apart. And the great synagogue at Alexandria, the men are said to have sat apart according to their respective trades. So whatever jobs they had, that's how they, they would sit. And so something along this line was taking place in the early church. And uh, James is talking about this in their assembly. And it's an indication that it was written to the Jews is, is that um, with the early date of this, um, there was a lot of new Jewish uh, people that had come to know the Lord, and they carried over some of their tendencies of, hey, the promises to Israel. And, uh, you know, we, we don't look on the Gentiles exactly the same. And so it was a process. But the example that's given here is of a man who comes in <clears throat> and he has a gold ring, and it literally means gold-fingered. Probably means this person was wearing more than one ring. Um, people of this day would wear several rings at a time uh, to display their social status and their wealth. Seneca, he was a Roman uh, Stoic philosopher. He says, quote, We adorn our fingers with rings and we distribute gems uh, over every joint. So they had it over, you know, all over the place. Uh, in Luke 15, 22, it says, But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him. And you remember this? And put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. So in their society, and the Romans in particular, um, they, they wore these rings for extravagance. Uh, there were even shops in Rome where you could go in and rent rings for special occasions. So just... Think about tux you do nowadays, but but even then you go and rent rings. Clement of Alexandria, uh, in one of his writings, felt it necessary to urge Christians to wear only one ring uh, because it was needed for purposes of sealing. Uh, And what they would do is they'd have their ring and they'd have a seal on the top. And when you would write a letter to prove that it was you, you'd have a little bit of clay and then you'd put your seal impression on it, and that would prove that it was from you. So he's encouraging them, hey, that's the one ring you need. (laughs) Don't be putting all these other rings uh, on your fingers. And so this man comes in, has a ring on his finger, fine clothes, and it translates bright, shining. And it's, it's the same word that's used for heavenly beings with the clothing that they would wear. And some of these clothes uh, even had silver or gold woven in it, and it gave it kind of a glowing appearance. Um, And so this is probably the the type of clothing that James is referencing here, and probably worn by some of the the wealthier Jews of that that time. And so this is the the situation when, when he comes in. And then the poor man, the contrast here. And this is, this is the seed of actions is what we're talking about. The seed of the heart was first, now the seed of actions. How you're treating the rich man, how you're treating the poor man. He didn't have a gold ring. Uh, probably didn't even have a ring at all. Um, and so this was a sign to them in their day with their classes of people that he was poor. His clothing didn't shine. It wasn't super bright. It was shabby. Um, um, you know, certain pictures can come to your mind to, today. It's maybe if someone who's in a desperate situation of being like homeless, you can think of that, just very dirty, shabby clothes. Uh, that's the kind of situation and image that James is giving us. Uh, dirty, worn, and unsightly. Most laborers, laborers only had one garment, and it was probably work stained. So that's probably what this poor man was, was wearing. And so in this uh, example that James is giving us, you have the dirty versus the the fine clothes. Um, And he's putting a contrast here for us. Um, The same word is also a root of the same word used in James 1.21, where it says, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. That's the extreme uh, usage of that word uh, to speak of this person, the, the, the filthiness. 
Um, so attention, it's interesting when you think about it, when it comes to favoritism and partiality, attention is given to both. Uh, the rich man gets special attention. And when you read verses 3 to 4, there is a, a sense of special attention. They, they were looking upon him with favor, you know, because of what he had, what he was wearing. Um, and the, the grammar of the verb makes it clear that uh, the eyes of the congregation were fixed admiringly on this visitor. Uh, they were in awe of his wealth. They were attracted by his outward appearance. And so what did they do? They said, hey, you sit over here right in the front. You're going to sit right next to uh, the, the rabbi's or the teacher's family, let's say. You know, we have a special place for you. They were doing that not because of he needed to be on the front row next to the, the speaker's family. It's because he was wearing these fine clothes. That's why you're going to be there. Sit here in this good place. Sit here in these nice seats. Um, many times, as you see even with the, the PowerPoint, they had seating uh, in amphitheaters like that, and they would have a special section uh, even made of uh, cement, and it would have backs on it raised up higher than anywhere else in the amphitheater, and they would take these uh, people that were favored, sometimes honored in, in a good way, but they would have those special seats that were were fixed uh, permanently in those amphitheaters for them to sit. So they would sit in the, the, the nice seats. Um, in the fourth century, uh, the apostolic constitutions stated this about churches and how they would seat people. Think about this with our modern day uh, when we have ushers here. Um, they stated that a bishop should place deacons in charge of seating people and directed that the service... Uh, already was in progress, if it was, the bishop would not interrupt the service uh, to direct a rich visitor to an upper place. Um, And so they they had things written in their constitutions about how to seat rich people and at what time, you know, what you would do. Reminds you, Matthew 23, 6, uh, seats that the Pharisees coveted, quote, they love the place of honor at banquets, and the chief seats in the synagogues, and respectful respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by men. What went along with their nice seats was a whole host of arrogant accolades. I mean, they got these all the time. So this is how the rich man is treated. What about the poor man? He's addressed personally here, though uh, brusquely. uh, Hey, uh, you sit here. (laughs) You know, you can sit over here. Or... You know, if there isn't a place open, you can sit by my footstool. You know, I have a footstool, and the idea is, you know, just kind of sit down next to my footstool. Just kind of an afterthought. Um, Not really giving much thought to, hey, this is uh, a person who's made in the image of God and is worth uh, hearing uh, the gospel, and yet you're treating him uh, this way, he's given basically normal attention at, at best. Um, you know, stand over there, sit at my footstool, uh, and to ask a person, especially say a visitor, uh, to sit down on my footstool, it, it's a show of disrespect, and that's what they were doing. Um, so they wouldn't would not only give up a bench chair, but they asked him not to sit uh, on the footstool, but by it. And one commentator says, uh, you know, how very old the Pew Pew scandal is. (laughs) It goes back a long ways. Um, And so verse 4 is the conclusion to to verse 2. And he says in verse 4, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges? Um, And this refers to their inner attitudes. uh, And we talked about that in their heart, but then also their actions. And it says that this is happening among yourselves. And it points out that um, this, these actions is what has been brewing in your heart. And you've made uh, distinctions. Uh, and distinctions means to separate or divide. So here you have believers that are coming into the assembly, and yet you're still trying to separate them. And we're to be one. We're to be unified together. James 1, 6 says, But he must ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. 
And so when these distinctions that take place, it means it's along the line of doubting, you know, who this person is. You're, you're, you're making judgments. You're making these distinctions. Uh, and he uses the word judges um, in making these distinctions between the rich and the poor. They were judges, and he says, with evil motives and thoughts. Um, and he calls them judges here, saying that they have needlessly made themselves ju- judges in this situation, and they didn't need uh, to do that. And in these decisions, they show that they were acting less than judicious. And so where did these distinctions come from? They came from partiality, showing partiality, based upon outward appearance. Um, so we need to... to Hear James's call and, and not be partial because unknowingly we are becoming judges. We may not even be thinking of it in those terms. And the difference between God and us, God is holy. Uh, he's impartial. And we need to recognize that our tendency, our sinful nature, uh, we have to guard against partiality or favoritism. And we don't want to have evil motives in the body of Christ because we can tend to brush it under the rug and say, hey, you know, I just tend to get along better with this person maybe or whatever the situation is. But especially in the body of Christ, we cannot be partial. Um, so how do, we, how do we deal with that? So partiality now moves from the seat of actions to the third seat, which is uh, the seat of remembrance. In verses 5 to 7, he says after judges with evil motives. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? So he's reminding them uh, that God also calls the poor. It's not just the poor, but that the poor also are those who inherit uh, the kingdom of God if they're truly repentant. It's not just rich people that that God calls, because there was a tendency as well in their day to see, uh, you know, when somebody had riches, that they were being blessed, that, that they were, you know, um, there was even an attitude that uh, between those who had money and those who didn't, that the rich would not steal, they wouldn't lie because they didn't have to. But the poor, they had to lie, they had to steal because they didn't have anything. That was an attitude that, that was there. And he's saying, hey, don't forget, God has chosen the poor as well. They're also heirs of the kingdom. And God rewards faith without reference to a a person's worldly possessions uh, or a lack of them. God chooses those he wants uh, without partiality. We should act uh, in accordance with God's attributes because God loved us. He saved us in spite of ourselves and in spite of what we had. We should love one another the same way. So James is uh, calling them to recognize this, to see this. Um, And with the poor people that were coming in and how they were being treated, and if they are called by God, and he's saying, why should we then treat them with disrespect now? Um, If we're following um, and looking to God's character, his holiness, how should we treat them? With love with care and concern. Stop and think about it for a moment is what James is saying. Why would we want to be partial to anybody? Uh, make sure we catch, catch ourselves uh, in our thinking because God, God chooses. God is the one who chooses or in his kingdom. And when he talks about the, the poor of this world, um, those are the, the ones that, uh, that God has specially chosen in, in this example that James is using. And what are they uh, in verse 5? They're rich in faith. Uh, These are those that will have an abundance of faith to believe the gospel and be saved. They're going to be just like those that are rich that know our Lord. They're going to persevere to the end too if they're uh, a part of God's family. And they're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1, 3. Romans 10, 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. So those riches are available to all. It's not 
the riches of God, the spiritual riches, are not only for the rich, it's for all. And yet, this is the poor who the world sees as inferior uh, because whatever the predicament is in their life that they don't have money, uh, they think, hey, they're not worth hearing the gospel and knowing the Lord. Um, so this is the worldliness that James is ex- exposing. And they, uh, they're heirs of the kingdom, he goes on and, and says. Uh, they're heirs of the kingdom, rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. And it ref- represents the entire sphere of salvation, where salvation is available to everyone, to even the poor. James is describing for us the kingdom in its present sense and the sphere of salvation for those over whom Christ rules, as well as its future millennial eternal glory. And it's promised to who? Well, he says, uh, to those who love him. Uh, these poor are the ones who have placed their trust in him. Uh, and if you stop and think about it, when we all get to heaven, no one is going to be poor. We're all going to be rich in the Lord. We're going to be blessed. There, there's no second-class citizens. And so we better start practicing that now because that's what we are as believers. We're not, and none of us are second-class citizens. We're all in the kingdom when we've trusted in Christ and repented. And yet it goes on and he says, you have dishonored the ones, the poor that God chose. In uh, verse 6 he says, you have dishonored the poor man. And is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Well, who are these, uh, these, these rich? Um, well, they obviously, in this case, there were some of the rich that they were oppressing them. Uh, do you not know that these that you're giving this special treatment to, uh, they're the ones that drag you into court. And um, they take you into court and they take advantage of you financially, uh, you know, with whatever you might have. Uh, and they sue you. They are belittling, belittling you. And sometimes uh, the indication here from James is that some of the rich people that were coming in may not have, they were not believers, uh, that they were coming in to, to hear and just listen. But yet they were giving even them special attention. Uh, so these are the ones that were blaspheming them. Blaspheming them. The Sadducees, more than likely, uh, they were wealthy aristocratic and secularized, and they were the ones that persecuted the early church. And it's possible James is referring to some of them as well. And they claimed to adhere to the scriptures. Um, And they were the ones that, you remember, opposed Jesus when he was on the earth and when he was alive. And they slandered his name in Matthew 16, 1 to 12, and also in chapter 22. And they strongly persecuted the early church. And so those are some that he could be talking about. And uh, he goes on and says um, in verse 7, Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? Um, They were blaspheming, you know, Christians. They are blaspheming the name of Jesus by persecuting believers, these rich people. And yet you're giving them honor. And so our great privilege as believers is to express Christ's love and impartiality, not only to one another, but to, to the world. And so that they, they would take notice of the gospel and, and notice of that, hey, we're different. We're, we're not those who can be swayed just by celebrity or money or whatever it is that can sway people. And so when we look at Partiality, this is something that we need to be aware of in the church. And so we go uh, now from the seed of remembrance that God, has he not called the poor uh, into his kingdom, that even the poor were called as well? Now it's the seed of responsibility. Uh, And we see that in verses 8 to 11. If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. And when he uses that word, he starts it off there with if. Uh, James, he uses that, and he's modifying you know, his previous statement. 
And he's showing that among all of those in the assembly, not everyone was guilty of showing favoritism. And he left that door open that some were showing kindness uh, to, to the rich visitors with the right motives. Um, but it also, also should be recognized that James is not teaching that the rich should be mistreated um, or discriminated against in favor of the poor. So some would draw those conclusions from it. But that's, that's not what he's talking about. Um, the law here is the law of God. In particular, uh, Levitic, Levitic, Leviticus, Leviticus 19.18, and is repeated by Jesus in Mark 12.31. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And this was a summary of man's duties to his fellow men. And we can conclude from this commandment that we are to love the rich as our neighbors just as much as the poor man. And Jesus made this clear in his ministry. And we're not denying that truth, that the rich and the poor are on the same level, uh, level playing field. Um, and this law is considered the royal law because of those um, that follow this law are heirs of the kingdom. And it comes from the king. And the royal law also could reference uh, the entire law uh, because the, the Greek word nomos is used without uh, an article before it, which means the entire law as opposed to a specific command. So the entire law is summed up in that one command, to love uh, your, your neighbor. Um, it's the summation of all laws. So the right course of action is to show favor to everyone, whether he is rich or poor. Matthew 22, 36 to 40, approaches Jesus. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Love overlooks such superficial distinctions as wealth and quality of clothing. It shows kindness to a person uh, despite any distasteful qualities that we would uh, determine. We don't know the whole situation of other people. We don't know what's going on in their lives as to why they're in the situation they are. So why would we make judgments? We can't be partial. So this is the royal law that they've transgressed. The supreme law of love for his neighbor. Uh, And if you sin at one point, it shows you to be a lawbreaker. I mean, that's that's how it is. We if we're to be perfect and holy, we would have to keep every commandment in the law. But once you sin at one point, you are a lawbreaker. And so what James is telling that those he's writing to and in his church, hey, Partiality is not insignificant. Uh, It's a sin. And there were those that were excusing this sin, Uh, especially if the rich person, you know, was converted. See? Oh, yeah, the person came and and actually were converted because we treated them this way. I could even use that as an excuse. Are you saying God's not going to save them if if you're not treating them in a certain way, in a way that's uh, in, in a wicked way, making judgments? No, you don't have to do that. So God's law is a unity because it's the expressed will of the one lawgiver. To sin even in one instance is to break the entire law of God. So James is setting up a special case here uh, in verse 10 when he speaks of someone who keeps the whole law except for one point because in 3.2 of uh, James chapter 3 verse 2, he insists that we all stumble in many ways. So he's giving us a specific example here. Uh, But for the sake of argument, he imagines a person who stumbles at just one point. He's saying, even if you kept everything, and with these two, he says, adultery and murder, and you only commit one, you still are stumbling, you still are sinning. And so you've broken the commandment, and you're guilty of breaking the whole law. If one violates, violates either of these ordinances, he is that transgressor. One becomes a criminal by committing just one crime or one sin. And we can't stand before a holy God that way without forgiveness, without repentance, without 
taking the sacrifice of Christ uh, as payment for our sin. So even though God's law has many facets, it is essentially one. uh, And it's a view like this that we need to have of the law of God. And to have favoritism is far from insignificant. So we're in the seed of remembrance. Remember that God called uh, the poor as well. Uh, We move from the seat of remembrance to the fifth seat, the seat of obedience. And what does the seat of obedience look like? Uh, What kind of uh, conduct is expected of believers? Um, And we go to verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Um, And he uses that word so uh, more than once there. And to look forward to the coming judgment of 2 Corinthians 5.10. Even as believers, we're going to be at the bema seat of Christ. Our works will be looked at and analyzed before God. And he's not threatening them with eternal judgment, obviously here, like the wicked would receive, but rather with the certainty that we are going to stand before Christ and render account of our obedience to the Lord with what we have done and what we have not done. So for James, uh, this event is related to Christ's coming and, and could occur at any moment. And we uh, are to be ready for that and uh, for that time. And that's going to affect how we live. At this judgment, um, you know, we're going to be examined. And we need to keep that in mind. This law of liberty sets believers free from guilt and slavery to sin. But it also places us under the obligation to obey to obey our Lord and Master. It's time to obey our Lord and His children, our brothers and sisters in Christ. James' point is that Christ not only holds believers accountable for their faith, but also for their works done in obedience, in this seed of obedience. And the reason uh, so is repeated, the word so, is to show the emphasis between the two verbs And they're both in the present tense, which shows this should be a continuing action. He wants them to speak and to act in light of the fact that they will be judged. This needs to be a a consistent behavior. And this leads us to the final destination of uh, where to seat partiality. So partiality has been moved through these five seats. So where should we seat partiality? Well, when it comes to What James is telling us here, partiality or favoritism is ejected by mercy and love, mercy and love. And we can think of mercy and love in the the Bible, some examples that are given to us, the Good Samaritan. Uh, We can think of of Jesus uh, for uh, healing the masses, forgiving sin, having compassion on people. And believers are reminded that mercy will be withheld from those who have displayed no mercy. So, in effect, when you're having partiality towards someone uh, and you're acting in that way, you're judging them, you know, become judges with evil motives, um, you're not having mercy. And for a person who does not show mercy, if that's a continual thing, obviously a non-believer... then that's going to be evident of someone who is a non-believer. But for believers, you are to show mercy. That is something that we strive after. And blessed are the merciful, Jesus said in Matthew 5, 7, for they shall receive mercy. Where will they receive mercy? Ultimately, at the judgment seat of Christ. And so James is not talking about any final condemnation here because we're talking about uh, the, the believer's but he wants us uh, to look towards that bema seat and realize that we are going to be uh, judged. Our, our works are going to be analyzed. So God's mercy always operates in conformity to his righteousness. And Christ bore the penalty for the believer's guilt in totality. So the matter of his justification before God is not in question. That's not what we're questioning here. But every believer... Uh, needs to be growing in acts of mercy, growing in our, in our faith and grace towards others. 
the, the true believer, we might have moments of, of struggle in, in this regard, but it shouldn't be an unbroken pattern. So, in conclusion, we have to ask ourselves, you know, where is the proper seat for partiality and favoritism, um, according to James? Uh, and we would say, hey, you have a picture of Grace Church. It's, it's full there. Well, we would say, hey, there, there's no seats. So they've, partiality has moved through these five seats, but when it comes down to it, it shouldn't be in our church, partiality. And when it comes to uh, the gospel, God's impartial call of the gospel goes out to who? Well, it goes out to the poor, the rich, the famous, the obscure, the weak, uh, the strong. Again, it's for all nations. And when we have the example of God, the triune God, he's the perfect example in God the Father, Christ, and the Holy Spirit, example of impartiality. What are the consequences of partiality and favoritism? Well, a lack of unity, it can cause that in the church. It, It cuts you off from fellow believers. You don't get to know people because you're making snap judgments about who they are, what, you know, and you don't get time, you don't have time to get to know them. Um, it weakens the body of Christ. Ultimately, it, it'll hurt our witness to the world. Oh, that's how you treat one another in your church. But if, boy, if they see a love and care and concern, I mean, that's going to speak to them and benefits of making no room for partiality, one in spirit, becoming like Christ together, uh, spiritual impact and Salvation opportunities. Um, you know, when, when we've been all have gone through a lot in the last year and a half and uh, just going through trials. When you go through trials with fellow believers, you grow closer together, um, no matter, you know, what the situation is. And when you're striving to become more like Christ, uh, you know, Hebrews 10, 24 and uh, 25 talks about, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We encourage one another. We can't do it alone. Uh, Christianity, Christianity is not an isolationist uh, belief. It's a trust in our Savior and in one another, building up one another. <clears throat> uh, Pastor John said this, there is to be no partiality in the church. Christ has abolished the barriers of nationality, race, class, and sex to make all believers one. If you want to reflect the epitome of God's, God's own heart and character, cultivate mercy. And that key verse in Deuteronomy 10, 17-18, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality, nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. The, the heart of God from the beginning has been one of impartiality. It's, it has not been inconsistent. And so just coming away from this today, you know, what are some ways that we can apply this uh, in our lives you know, just think about the sin of partiality is, is something that comes naturally to us as p- human beings, people, sinful nature. But we have to remember, as Christians, who are called to remain unstained by the world. That's the end of chapter 1 of James, where he talks about uh, being unspotted, unstained by the world. That it's a sin, partiality, that we must resist. That's the first thing. Meaningful personal change requires us to have a clear understanding of truth about the area in which we want to change. So just understanding it, you know, studying the scriptures and and looking at partiality is the the first step. Um, And just James' strong rebuke of partiality is designed to bring the light of God's truth to this important area of our life. So it's there. We need to pay attention to it. It's there for a reason. And sin needs to be seen for what it is and plainly rebuked. Generalities and euphemisms will not bring about true change. And so he gives us a specific issue of partiality, and it's a clear example of this. Uh, 
and then realizing that the reality of divine judgment is a powerful incentive as well, that we're going to give an account before Christ. Um, And so we need to remember that as well. And judgment and mercy should always be kept together in our teaching, preaching, and in living out our lives, just remembering both. And again, coming back to partiality, just and remember, there's a difference between partiality and favoritism versus giving respect to someone. Um, there are those that, that serve us here at the church, um, maybe serve us in other ways, that we will highlight and, and give respect to and honor, and that's appropriate. But you see, that's not a judgment made with an evil motive. That's the difference. And we just have to look to the example of Christ and, and our Lord as to what impartiality looks like. And realize, we're not going to be, we're, we're not God, so we're not going to be perfect in that area. But that's the goal. And we know what we're supposed to do. And so when we do fail in this area, what do we do? Well, we go to the Lord and say, hey, please forgive me. Or even go to the person if, if you've done something to them uh, to put them in a position where you're, uh, despising them, you're making a judgment against them. You know, take the time to talk to them, get to know them, say, hey, you know, uh, you're, you're my brother or sister in the Lord, and I love you. And, and we need to put it into practice in our actions. So when it comes down to it, uh, we've got to put off partiality and favoritism, and we need to demonstrate grace, grace to one another, mercy, because mercy triumphs judgment. If all we live by is judgment, making judgments, judgments of everybody, um, that goes against everything that the gospel stands for in our lives, and that is forgiveness because of the love of God in choosing us, an unworthy sinner. Who are we to despise someone else? Let's pray. Our Lord, we are thankful that you are an impartial God and that you don't save based upon rank or riches, but you save those that you want to save by your will, and you're holy, and we trust you in that. And we help us, Lord, to be like you, to be like Christ, to be impartial and to love our brothers and sisters in the Lord and that we would help one another to grow spiritually, that we would encourage one another to grow, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds from a a genuine heart of compassion for one another. Thank you, Lord, for saving us and not uh, judging us um, with partiality because we deserve it, but you are impartial. We love you, Lord, and we give you all the glory in Christ's name. Amen.